0: That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and that Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So far, the reading of God's holy word. As a young college student, he lived a life that was typical of many college and university students of his day. Born in England in 1708, William Grimshaw showed great intellectual promise by the time he was 17 years old. He entered Christ College, Cambridge. But unfortunately, while he was there, he began to drink and swear, and he became, in his own words, as vile as the worst. Nevertheless, at the end of his time at Cambridge, Grimshaw chose to enter the ministry and sought ordination in the Church of England. He thought ministry provided a decent living. Some of his theological views were heretical and his lifestyle ungodly. But these things did not stop him from being ordained in 1732. For three years, he spent the bulk of his days hunting and fishing. His evenings were for socializing with the influential members of society, gambling, drinking, and swearing. He did his duty in the church on the Lord's Day. And with this, his conscience was satisfied. Whether his flock was satisfied, he neither knew nor cared. But over the course of time, God slowly began to deal with him. It is thought that his acute awareness of sin came through the difficult experiences of two of his parishioners whose baby died. The mother was completely distraught. She continued to dress and tend her dead child. And Grimshaw had absolutely nothing with which to comfort her. They came to him for counsel, but as they did, he was forced to acknowledge his own spiritual bankruptcy. From that moment on, he sought to reform his own lifestyle. He gave up his daily recreation and nightly carousing. He kept a strict record of all his sins, balancing them against his good deeds. He dutifully visited all the members of his church, catechized the children, and urged reformation of life upon the people. Yet, satisfying the rigors of God's standards seemed impossible. Impossible. He became so depressed that on one Sunday he he felt hardly able to mount the steps of his pulpit. In despair, he would preach to his congregation, My friends, we are in a damnable state, and I scarcely know how we are to get out of it. Then when two of his parishioners attempted to commit suicide, Grimshaw was called to visit. He later said that his first reflection was, I don't know how soon I may do this too. His struggle became even greater when an itinerant preacher rebuked him for his legalistic view of salvation. He said, you are no believer in Jesus Christ. You're building on sand. Grimshaw tried to avoid the man. But the words, you are building on sand, kept haunting him. His spiritual struggle continued for some years until in 1741, he found a book lying at a table at his friend's house. The author was the great Puritan theologian, John Owen. The title, The Doctrine of Justification by Faith. As he read, he learned of the imputed righteousness of Christ The book challenged him to trust, not in his own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ alone. You don't have to strive to make yourself acceptable to God. Through faith, you possess the perfect righteousness of Christ without any contribution of your own. Grimshaw said, I quote, I was now willing to renounce myself Every degree of fancied merit and ability, and to embrace Christ only for my all in all. Oh, what light and comfort did I now enjoy in my own soul, and what a taste of the pardoning love of God. His ministry immediately changed, and he became a mighty preacher. Under his spiritual leadership, the little-known village became one of the leading centers for the Christian faith in all of England. He ministered powerfully and effectively in Hayworth until his death in 1763. His diligent labors extended to towns for miles around, and the Lord used him to bring a tremendous awakening to many. Numerous poor villagers were transformed into those who knew and loved the riches of Christ. Congregation, over the course of time, William Grimshaw had become aware of three important truths. Truths that are so fundamental for each and every one of you. First, he realized the greatness of his sin and misery. Second, he became aware of the way of deliverance. And third, he understood the importance of thankfulness to God for such deliverance. The Heidelberg Catechism rightly states that these three things are necessary for you to know that you may live and die contentedly. And so from 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 to chapter 2 verse 4, we want to consider these three things. We begin with the awareness of guilt. Look with me please in your Bibles to 1 John 1 verse 8 if we say that we have no sin if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us there seem to have been heretics in the early church who claimed to have reached a spiritual peak where sin no longer existed in their lives similar claims have been made throughout the history of the church And I understand that there are some professing Christians right here in our community who make that claim. But John shoots down this error. The claim to be without sin is self-deception. Brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches that the great obstacle, the great wall between man and God is sin. It has destroyed the communion that he created between himself and his creatures and ruined all that God made to be so beautiful. If we deny our sinfulness, we're going against all that God has revealed in the scriptures. We read in Psalm 14 verse three, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Psalm 53, God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. The Bible unambiguously teaches the universality of sin. Psalms 14 and 53 describe the Lord as bending over to look down from heaven to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. But as he looks down and scans his creation, he can't find any, not a single one. There is none who does good, no, not one. They have all turned aside. Since the fall and disobedience of Adam, humanity has become so corrupt that we are incapable of doing any spiritual good and inclined to all evil. Man's understanding is darkened. In his fallen nature, he often calls white, black, and black, white, light, darkness, and darkness, light, evil, good, and good, evil. Apart from God's enlightening work of grace in the human heart by the Holy Spirit, not a single person could understand spiritual things. When God looks down upon this fallen world, he sees pollution, filth, corruption, and unrighteousness. He sees people who have been fatally damaged in their whole being. Brothers and sisters, when we are born again, We long for greater sanctification. We long to be more like Jesus, and praise God, we do make progress in holiness. But if we say that we are now sinless, we are denying obvious truths of Scripture. John says we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Yes, believers are forgiven. Yes, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. When a person is converted, the light of God enters the mind, heart, and soul. That doesn't mean that we are now without sin in our daily lives. The battle lasts a lifetime. The mark of a Christian is not sinlessness, but sin consciousness. We can claim to be without sin... But such a claim does not change reality. A man who is full of cancer can say that he has no cancer but he's only deceiving himself. All the medical tests show that his body is plagued by a terrible disease. The cancer has spread throughout his body. The man might say, I feel fine. The medical reports are not accurate. I know better than the doctors do. Such a person is just not willing to face The facts he deceives himself he can scream loudly that he has no cancer he can tear up and burn the medical reports he can accuse his doctor of a mistaken prognosis but none of those things will change the fact he has a cancer that is dreadful in congregation so it is with sin we can dogmatically assert that we have no sin We can tear up and burn the book that reveals our sin. We can accuse God of a mistaken evaluation of our condition, but none of these things will change the fact we are sinners who offend a holy God by our unrighteousness. And unless our sin is dealt with, we will eventually be destroyed. We must listen to the Bible's evaluation of our condition. In verse 10, John says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. story is told of Charles Spurgeon when he was a speaker at a conference along with another man. This other man publicly proclaimed that Christians could reach a place of sinless perfection where they no longer struggled with sin. The speaker went on to suggest modestly that he had realized this in his own life. Spurgeon said nothing. The next morning at breakfast time he crept up behind the man and poured a jug of milk on his head. He quickly discovered that the man still had his sinful nature. Now, I'm not sure we should follow Spurgeon's example in pouring a jug of milk over someone's head, but he certainly made his point. Brothers and sisters, both Scripture and experience loudly proclaim our sinfulness so that only a deaf man would deny it. If we do not accept God's evaluation of our condition, we deceive ourselves. We are devoid of the truth, we make him a liar, and we show that the word of God has little place in our lives. Each one of you must have the sobering awareness, each and every one, the sobering awareness of how great your sin and misery are. The prophet Ezekiel, when speaking of the new covenant, when God would put his spirit within his people, Ezekiel said, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will, what? Loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. You will loathe yourselves. You will loathe yourselves. That's the language that is used in our form for public profession of faith. Did you recognize it? Do you confess that you desire, and humble, that, that you despise, and humble yourself before God because of your sins? We also find that language in the form for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Let everyone carefully consider their sins and ungodliness, that he may abhor himself and humble himself before God. The, the awareness of your sin is vital. But secondly, to live and die contentedly, you must not only know your guilt, but you must also have the assurance of grace and salvation. The assurance of grace and salvation. That assurance is expressed right here. Look with me, please, in your Bibles to verse 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's the answer to humanity's great dilemma. Sin separates us from God. God, who is light and dwells in unapproachable light, will not enter into communion with darkness. What fellowship has light with darkness? But here's the good news. When you face the reality of your guilt and admit that God's evaluation of you is correct, when you say, Yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve your condemnation and wrath. What your word says about me is true. My heart is full of darkness. Lord, I confess it to you. Then, says John, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, congregation, the essential step to fellowship is what? Confession. Confession. That's not only essential for an unbeliever who comes to a saving relationship with God, it's also essential for the believer to remain in continued fellowship. With God. This is clearly taught in Psalm 32. Keep your finger in at 1 John 1 and turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. It's a psalm of David, the man after God's own heart. David was a man of great spiritual strength in many ways. He fought the battles of the Lord, trusted him, and walked in close fellowship with God. When you read some of his psalms, you sense the closeness that he experienced with his Lord. But that was not always in the, case, the case in the life of David. There were also times when it seemed as though God was very distant. His fellowship with him seemed to be almost non-existent. We find one of these low points in Psalm 32, which we sang before the Scripture reading. David tells us of how he fell into deep depression. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. i just hold it open there for a moment. David had sinned against the Lord and kept it hidden. He tried to smother his conscience and desperately tried to bury his sense of guilt, but his bones grew old. His guilt sapped all his energy. His strength withered away. His bones felt consumed by the terrible torments of his mind. What was the reason for his agony? Day and night, God's hand was heavy upon him. God was pressing down on him unceasingly, verse 4. He could find no peace. His vitality was gone. He felt dry and barren as land during the heat of summer. He was like a plant that shrivels up in summer for lack of water. It was as though his relationship with the Lord was gone. God seemed far away. Congregation, how did David get out of this slump? How was the pressing hand of God released? Look at verse 5 of Psalm 32. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin That brothers and sisters is the key to fellowship I will confess my transgressions to the Lord." David exposed himself before the Lord and confessed his guilt. The confession of sin marked the end of his struggle. The weight was lifted and the burden taken away. He found peace with his God and could commune with him once again. We read in Proverbs 28, verse 13, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. The Apostle John understood this when he wrote 1 John 1, verse 9. Let's go back there. 1 John 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What God here is a genuine confession. He is faithful to forgive. That is true for someone who has never been a Christian and comes for the first time, but it's also true for the believer who has fallen into sin. The Christian life is a life of ongoing daily repentance. Acknowledgement of sin is the means by which we are delivered. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. To fellowship with Him, you must be cleansed. To be cleansed, you must confess your sins. Instead of hiding your sins, or trying to find excuses, or trying to justify them. You must simply acknowledge them to God. And then we can be sure that we are pardoned. We don't have to wonder or doubt. John says, verse 9, he is faithful. He's faithful to his promises. He is just. He will do as he said. He never goes back on his word. For the sake of Christ's satisfaction, God will no more remember your sins. Hebrews 8.12 says, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Brothers and sisters, do you desire to live in fellowship with God? Then don't deny your sins, cover them, nor speak of them in vague generalities. Rather, confess them. There are times when you can be very specific with God. Instead of saying rather quickly, Lord, forgive all my sins, say, Lord, forgive this particular sin. Forgive my anger, my pride, my stubbornness, my lust, my selfishness, my deceit. I know that I've offended you, but oh God, I want to be right with you. I want the barrier of sin to be broken down so that nothing can hinder my walk with you. Congregation, there is no sin from which you cannot be cleansed if you come to God with a humble attitude. Look at chapter two, verse one. Chapter two, verse one. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles. We have an advocate. What's an advocate? We have an advocate. Children, what's an advocate? An advocate is someone who rises to your defense. An advocate is a defense attorney, someone who speaks in your defense. When you sin and confess it before the Lord, Jesus Christ rises to your defense. You can have the assurance that you have an advocate with the Father. He is the ideal defense attorney. Why? Why? Because verse 2 says, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Some translations say he's the atoning sacrifice, but I prefer the rendering of the new King James. He himself is the propitiation. Why do I prefer propitiation? Well, propitiation is an important word because it has to do with the wrath of God. Jesus is the ideal defense attorney because he propitiated, turned aside the wrath of God. His sacrifice on the cross satisfied the demands of God's justice and appeased his holy wrath against our sins. The one who is our advocate is the one who satisfied the divine wrath. Congregation, you could have no better defense attorney than Jesus Christ, the righteous. He speaks to the Father in your defense, and on the basis of his atoning death, he pleads for your acquittal. What a blessing. What a gift. But we need to go on to our final point. What must you know to live and die contentedly? Number one, awareness of guilt. Number two, assurance of grace. And finally, point number three, attitude of gratitude. Believers are called to express their gratitude to God not only through our words, but also through a life of service. We are to show true thankfulness to God in all that we say and do. Notice what John says in verses 3 and 4. Have a look. Verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. How should we express our thankfulness for all that Christ has done, is doing, and will do for us? John says, those who know him keep his commandments. If you don't keep his commandments, you don't know him. You may say that you know him, but you're a liar. You see, congregation, John tells us that one of the ways we can verify that we are indeed forgiven children of the living God is by keeping his commandments. Now, of course, obedience to his commandments does not make you a Christian. You're a Christian because you've trusted your advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He alone has the ability to propitiate the divine wrath. He alone had the ability to keep God's commandments perfectly, flawlessly. But while obedience to his commandments does not make you a Christian, it does verify that you are a Christian. Those who know that they are cleansed from all unrighteousness desire to live in a manner that is pleasing to God. And how do we know what's pleasing to Him? Through His law. God says to you, this is how I want my redeemed people to live. This is the kind of life that I want you to pursue. These are the principles that I want you to manifest in your life. If you love me, keep my commandments. Brothers and sisters, as you live by the word, your external obedience provides evidence that inwardly you love your advocate, Jesus Christ, and you desire to offer to him a life of thankful service. Your external obedience provides evidence that you know him, you know him intimately and savingly. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Go to verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Those who truly know God and are truly redeemed in Jesus Christ are those who pursue holy lives. The obedience, the obedience that accompanies salvation is not merely a legalistic obedience observed superficially and hypocritically. It is a grateful, thankful, loving obedience that flows from a redeemed heart. That grateful, loving obedience to scripture is a reliable indicator both to self and to others, that you have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Later on in his epistle, John writes, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Believers' obedience will never be perfect in this life. Nevertheless, as we live the Christian life, we desire to walk as Christ walked, to follow that perfect pattern. We desire to walk in the light, to express our gratitude to him through a life of committed service. Dear friends, is that your desire? Does your life reveal that you are thankful to God for all that he has done? that you love your advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous? Have you committed your life to serving him in obedience to his commands? Young people, are you living for the one who went to the cross to rescue sinners from eternity in hell? Are you devoted to the one whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for guilty rebels? John says rather bluntly in verse 4 that if you say you know him but do not keep his commandments, you're a liar. You're a liar. If you claim to know him but show no desire to walk as Christ walked, your claim is completely unfounded. You're a liar. Those are strong words. John's very straightforward. He calls each one of us to consider whether we truly know him. Congregation, if you have been convicted concerning the greatness of your sin and misery, and if God has sovereignly shown you the way of deliverance, then it will be your desire to live a life of thankful, obedient service for the glory of God. An attitude... Of gratitude. Think about this concluding illustration. He was in agony. He had made a real mess of his life and he was now suffering the consequences. They had condemned him and hung him up for public humiliation. He had participated in illegal activity, being caught He was pronounced guilty, and together with his partner in crime, was crucified. He knew that there was no way of escape. It was only a matter of time before he would breathe his final breath. On a cross next to him was another man. Over his head, the authorities had fastened an inscription written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, this is the king of the Jews. The people, rulers and soldiers at the foot of the cross mocked him. The thief watched and listened as the man next to him, whom they called Jesus, was being ridiculed. For a while he even joined them. But after some time, the thief grew silent. As he began to realize that this Jesus was no ordinary man. He began to see something in him that all the religious leaders failed to see. This man prayed for his murderers. Father, forgive them. He's not filled with anger and hatred. He expressed true compassion. As the dying thief saw and heard the conduct and words of Jesus, something began to stir powerfully within him. Although he probably had very little theological knowledge, in the final hours of his life, the Spirit of God made him aware of at least... Three things. First, he realized the greatness of his sin and misery. When his partner continued to mock Jesus, he said to him, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. He acknowledged his guilt and admitted that he fully, he fully deserved what he got. Being convicted by the Spirit, he understood that he was a vile sinner worthy of punishment and death. Second, he not only realized his sin and misery, but he also became aware of the way of deliverance. As he hung next to Jesus, he realized that there was a stark contrast between them. He said of Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. His words were so wonderfully true. Jesus was the lamb without blemish and without spot. He was the only man who ever lived who could honestly and truthfully claim to be without sin. From the manger to the cross, he had done nothing wrong. The contrast between Jesus and the dying criminal was stark. The criminal could have said with the hymn writer, just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. False and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. After confessing the innocence of Jesus, he went on to pray to him for mercy. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Congregation, think about this for a moment. What an amazing prayer. As the thief looked at Jesus, what did he see? He saw a man with blood running down his face, clothes stripped from his body, hands and feet pierced with nails, his body racked with pain. He saw a man deserted by his friends, despised by his enemies, and rejected by all the honored people of his day. And yet, this penitent thief looked at him and said, Lord? Lord? Could this helpless, pathetic, unrecognizable, curse-hated man be called Lord? Would he be a king? Would he have a kingdom? What astonishing faith is contained in that brief prayer. He believed that this man, who was humiliated before the crowds, was going to be crowned as king. The dying thief saw no royal robes, no golden crown, no kingly scepter, no signs of glory or might, yet he believed that Jesus was the king of a great heavenly kingdom. The thief asked that Jesus... Would remember him. And how did Jesus respond, children? How did Jesus respond? Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. A sinful man, a criminal, a soul that had been tottering on the brink of hell and seemed beyond all hope. This very man received the assurance from the lips of Jesus that he would be with him that very day in paradise. With kindness and gentleness, Jesus assured him that he was completely pardoned, justified, redeemed, rescued from hell, and given a title to glory. This thief did not have the opportunity to be baptized to join a church, to sit at the table of the Lord, or do any great works for Jesus. But he had faith. He had faith. And so he was saved. Brothers and sisters, knowing his sin and misery and knowing the way of deliverance, isn't it safe to conclude that he was filled with thankfulness to God for his deliverance? He could breathe his final breath with praise in his heart, for he knew that he was soon to be with Jesus in paradise. I suspect his theological knowledge was extremely limited, but he knew at least three things. The greatness of his sin and misery, how to be delivered, and how to thank God for such deliverance. Are those things a reality in your heart? Dear friends, may that threefold knowledge permeate every aspect of your life. That each one of you may live and die contentedly. Let us pray. Lord, we recognize what your word says about us, vile and full of sin I am. We thank you for the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, convicting us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We pray, O Lord, for that convicting power in the lives of each and every one of us. We pray, Lord, that you will work in the hearts of our children, the hearts of our young people, They would be brought to their knees recognizing that there is no hope apart from Christ. Convict us then, Lord, not only of our sin, but also of the way of deliverance. Impress that upon our minds and our hearts here this morning that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That Lord, knowing our advocate, knowing that we have a qualified defense attorney in your presence, knowing that through confession all our sins are wiped away, gone. Knowing these wonderful truths, may we live with that attitude of gratitude. Lord, expressing that to you both with our words and with our life. So, Lord, would you look upon us here this morning. You know us all, you know where we're at. We, we can hide nothing from you. Give us the grace to confess our sins, not only in those, with those vague generalities, but, Lord, specifically before you, before your throne, for it is. A throne of grace. So receive our praises as we conclude. Would you work in the hearts of each one of us, Lord, that one day along with the pardoned thief we may be with our Lord Jesus in paradise. In his name we pray. Amen.